Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. That's what we want. I'm trying. The the death rate to go down. And aloe is A-L-O. And that, a lot of times people, uh, like it's got some hippie name. I don't know if I've ever told the story. So when Evan and Jared and I started the rehab together, it was called Acadia. Right. Right. And so, and it was Acadia for like three years. Then there's something called Acadia Health. Have you heard of this? some big monolith rehab psych hospital company. And they said we couldn't use the name anymore. And so then, like, there was a hundred names went around. I hated them all. I mean, aloe, right away, what do you think? Aloe vera, like aloe lotion, right? Right. But it's not spelled that way. It's A-L-O. And it's some some Greek thing that means redemption or I don't know. But all the rehab's names are awful. Don't you think? What's yours? Wavelengths? Yeah. Wavelengths doesn't even sound like a rehab. It sounds like a surf club. That's why it's good. Then there's Cornerstones. Isn't it Cornerstones in Tustin? Yeah. Corner, Cornerstone. Isn't it Cornerstones? Isn't, and isn't it a Dr. Stone or something that... Cornerstones? And then Chapman House is Tim. Tim. That's his name. I but, thought it was on Chapman. No, but it, it, it started as an adolescent program on Chapman <laughs> in the city of Orange. Hey, that's funny. Yeah. So, I mean, name and treatment centers is one of the hardest things to do. You know, I, I started Hollywood Recovery Center in 2007, I think, and it never caught on. And I thought, what's more self-explanatory? It's a rehab center in Hollywood. Hollywood Recovery Center. Like, what does that mean? It's a recovery center in Hollywood. <laughs> what do they do? Where is so, it? <laughs> no, but in calling it something different than what people are familiar with, right? Meaning, why is the word Hollywood in it, right? Um, people couldn't catch on. They love cornerstones and pebble stones and lengths and waves. And they love that passages and promises and all that. There's just a typical you know garden variety name that a rehab has and and it's not hollywood recovery center it's i don't know i just never i thought it was pretty self-explanatory so i failed at that right then i just thought i'm a hopeless businessman i just lost a hundred thousand dollars of a friend of mine's money this is fucking awful and so i just decided i should just be a clinician right i should just but I didn't want to work in a rehab, right? Because I was burnt out. I've been doing it for like 10 years. I got into the courts. It was the greatest thing ever. I loved You work like three hours a day. You got to be there at 8.30. You get the guy out of jail. You bring him to rehab. You go have coffee and go home. And mm. I was making a living doing that. Hmm. Then they stopped making drugs illegal. It was Crazy. crazy. What in the fuck is that? (laughs) Drugs are not illegal anymore. Think about that. On January 1, you can smoke weed in front of a police officer, and there's nothing they can do about it. How crazy is that? 
People get, I had a client that was nodded out in his car at Lost Hills Road and the 101 freeway, pulled off the freeway, just on the Lost Hills off-ramp, high out of his mind, had like half a $20 bag of heroin and some tinfoil. They called his parents and brought him, <laughs> brought him to the jail until the parents came and picked him up. Heroin. Hmm. So I was out of a job. <laughs> wow, that's... That's nuts. I was out of a job, and Evan and Jared had the sober living, and they said, you want to start a rehab? And I was like, okay, let's do it, because they're not, drugs aren't illegal anymore. I'm going to be... Oh, they're arresting people for drugs again. In Santa Ana, they are, for some reason. Well, because people are dying. They got to look like they're doing something. But they just, I had a friend of mine, a clinician's son, who he didn't want to be involved, and he did the right thing. He said, Bob, will you go pick up my kid? He's getting out from a heroin possession he'd been in there four days the charges were dropped no nothing for time served how fucking crazy is that for heroin for heroin chuck yeah not that, for pot yeah not for like a little bit of coke for heroin what are they saying there's no room i think that there's this decriminalization movement that's gone on that just like oh it's a medical problem you know, which then leads into the medical, a medical problem should have a medical solution, which is Suboxone. So there you go. Hmm. Everybody's going to be on Suboxone. It'll be great. Maybe we can get on it, Chuck. Yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> it might be mandatory. I know where it might it become go. mandatory I, I in the United be, States. If, if, you've, if you've had any, <laughs> any run-ins with the law or any problems with your sobriety, if you're symptomatic, that we need if you're having <laughs> cravings, if you're if, having thoughts of using, yes, craving suppression medication. The sobriety it, thing is, you know, it's a it's a non quantifiable. It's overrated. It's not evidence based. Medicine is evidence based. So, anyways, I complain a lot, but in real life, my life is fabulous. I have this ability, this compartmentalization, where I can just rant and rave about the recovery industry or or the state of parenting, or just all these things that irritate me, and in an instant just turn it off and be so happy in my own life. Is that psychotic? Um, multiple personalities, maybe. <laughs> no, not when you live out here. This is so nice out here. It's I know. beautiful. It's so quiet. It's like, you're saying several personalities are okay when you live in Claremont? <laughs> if it's quiet, then you can, you can kind of you know, pick between the two. But at my place where the ghetto is, it's like, man, I'm telling you. You pay, you pay a lot of money for that place. I, have you been to his new place? Yeah. Not is a, is not it in, in the ghetto? Good. It's not in the ghetto. Is that, can't that's be. off 10th, right? It's not the ghetto. I'm just, you know. <laughs> Dude, if Lonnie, anything, I make it the ghetto. <laughs> Mike, it wasn't Mike, Mike brings the in. ghetto with him. <laughs> They're like, oh, shit, there goes the neighborhood. So, so no, but I, I really do have, I, it doesn't, when I'm, rant, when I'm frustrated with it, it doesn't even really emotionally affect me. I'm just, I just can't, I just can't believe that we've gotten like this as parents as a recovery industry, as the recovery community. I just can't believe we got like this. And I'm not some old person longing for the old days. I know there were shortcomings in the old days. I'm just looking at the symptomology of the society. When you have the leading cause of death, Chuck, it just came out a month ago. The leading cause of death in America, period. Leading cause of death in America, period, for 50 year or younger is drugs. 
Hmm. That's just unfathomable. That is ridiculous, right? When you, you know, and this is during the time we had access to treatment for everyone. Think about wow. that. Wow, yeah. What does that say about the recovery industry? And what does it say about the, the recovery, recovery community? Pop-up, the pop-up recovery industry. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, they do pop-up stores for new released albums. I mean, we had pretty much a pop-up industry for yeah, a Yeah, we did a have a pop-up years. industry. Now it's going to go away, thank God. But anyways, I can rant and rave, but in my real life, it's like I just listen to music and I can't, I got Neil Young Tonight's the Night for, on, for eBay. It came in the mail the other day. I've been listening nice. to it. I just like... I get to listen to music. I have good friends. I have great kids. I have a great wife that I just married. That's right. Congratulations. Well, when you have kids, it's your wife by virtue of biblical proportion, isn't it? Well, we made it it official. It's actually cheaper Uh, on the tax return. It is cheaper on the tax return. But how about, isn't there a thing in the Bible where layeth, he layeth with? Right. They, they You're asking the with, wrong guy. Are you I'm not sure, a Bible guy? How do you, you live do in that, Orange you, County you, and not be a Bible you guy? You do that every time. You assume that I've got a Bible in my back pocket and I'm going to straighten you out. I know that <laughs> I knew Mike's mom, so I know that I... See, I don't know enough about your family and stuff, but Mike, I knew his mom. And so I knew he he's not he was never introduced to the Bible ever. <laughs> okay. No, my you know my my family they 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 show me some of that stuff, but as far as memorizing that stuff, nah. I, Anyways, I, well, I went to Catholic school, and people layeth with other people in that book, <laughs> and when they layeth with them, they are joined by the Lord or something. Okay, so right? there's a third person. So once you have a child with somebody, you're married to them, in my opinion. So you might as well go down to the courthouse and make it, make it formal, and that's what Christy and I did a, a week ago down in Laguna Beach. I think it's a public statement, if nothing else. If you want to take all the spirituality out of it, you can say it's a public statement of saying... I love her. I'm going to follow the rules of standard relationship rules, and I'm committed to you because you know that you can fall in love five times a day if you really wanted to. It's about being dedicated to someone and nurturing that relationship. That's what, you know. I just feel lucky. So, so. Yeah, wouldn't you find somebody that'll tolerate us? I that married tolerate mine for sure. Me, that it's just like unbelievable. Like, mm-hmm. she, either she doesn't really hear well. Or she's just able to ignore a lot. They, they, they're, they're good at ignoring. She's super smart, bro. She just compart- She's just like, I'll just be going off. This. I read the paper in the morning, like at six in the morning. When she gets up, I just start telling her stuff. And she just gets coffee and she just sits and she doesn't say anything. And I'm already in full bore anti-Trump <laughs> world or whatever. <laughs> and uh, she just sits there. She doesn't even say anything. And she she just, has degrees, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know. She, maybe she sees me as a client, uh, a as mental a, patient. A, I think a case study would be case study, exactly. <laughs> case study and how does this guy function in society? And this way she doesn't have to buy the rights to sell your story because she's married to you. Good move. Yeah, there you go. She's studying you like a Neanderthal. Yeah, like, like this is the last of a kind. <laughs> Look, I found a frozen man in the ice. <laughs> Here's another thing. She is much 20 years younger than me, right? So I always make references of like the clash or or Joan Didion or whatever, and there's always just this blank look huh? on her face. She does that like I do with sports. <laughs> like you do with sports, right? 
<laughs> and so I saw this Joan Didion documentary. I cried. I was just like mind boggled. And then we were talking about, I was talking about Joan Didion to her. And she said, oh, I read that play. I didn't finish it. And I was like, oh my God, there is, it opens me up to, hey, your world is not the only world, right? That's what a really rich relationship can do. Like, I, I now question my world. Like, why do I think Joan Didion's so important if Chrissy doesn't think so? You know what I mean? That give and take in a relationship. Well, yeah, it also puts into perspective the, the, things, the things we see and at what time in our life we're exposed to them. So that's why I've been married and divorced so many times. <laughs> no, yep, that's you, it. Mike. You never, you <laughs> that's never it, Mike think, Martin. <laughs> it, I've been married and divorced a couple, three times, a couple times. And, you know, mostly my relationships have been, I don't know, it's weird. I've always, I see this relationship as different. Maybe it's because I'm older. Like, I just want to get along, and I just want to raise a family, and I just want to cooperate. And before, I wanted the other person to wise up and <laughs> cooperate, you know what I mean, with my uh, agenda. I, that, no, that's an age thing, too. When you find somebody and you don't want to change them, that's just a beautiful thing. Now, we are coming at a crossroads here. Because Chrissy is from Claremont. That's why we moved here to have Sid and be near her family. A family that is still married to this day. Like, that's another shocking mm -hmm. thing, right? So, and she's kind of grew up here, went K through 12 here. This is not her final resting spot. And I'm pretty much loving this house in Claremont. So we're trying to figure out what are we going to do? Because we, uh, I went back to L.A. two times this week, and I found it repulsive. I never thought I would ever what? think that. Wow. Just like the traffic Mike, and the mark people. That. <laughs> Mike, what do Take you think? Mike, Mike left Hollywood like 15 years ago. Yeah, but he I, never I, looked back. Yeah, but I love the kind of the scrappy city, you know what I mean? You, I, I, you I like just Hollywood I still, still? I st Yeah, I still. When you go to like, where did we go? We went somewhere. We went to, I don't know where we were. We were on those Felis in, on Vermont. And I was just like, there's nowhere to park here. This is fucked. I hate this. Ah, don't right? worry, you'll go back. You know, <laughs> after after you're there for a couple of weeks, you'll feel it again. I mean, it's like you know, my wife doesn't; she's not a fan of any parts of LA, but there are parts of it that are there's just a lot of good memories. And like going, even being at the Hollywood Bowl and walking back down to the, wherever we parked on Franklin Ho Hollywood and Vine down there, you know, it was so. I, I just like being out there; it's electric. It's so alive compared to Orange County. Maybe I need another year at Claremont. To long for it, because I and I also went to Elvis's uh, music recital, his Christmas recital, and it was the weirdest thing ever. So when you did Christmas recital, you're <laughs> ten years younger than me, right? 40, 40, how old are you? I'm fifty. Fifty. Uh -huh. You're six years younger than me, and Mike's same age as me. So when we were kids, think about this: there were recitals, right? But who right. was in the audience? You, the other grades, not. A thousand pa parents. I went to this thing, and there were all the dads were there too, of first and second and third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade parents. Wait, was whole, it a daytime or an evening? Yeah, it was ten forty-five this morning. How did they all get off work to go to that? They because you're a bad parent unless you be there. That's oh. the society we live in. Oh man! And I I just went because I wanted. Sid to see Elvis, you know, singing this, and he sang "Let It Be," 
It was pretty cool. But that's my favorite I just, Christmas song. I just song. only went there to bring Sydney to see her brother sing. I didn't go there because I think the people will judge me. I'm a bad dad if I don't go to get my kid's dumb recital. It's <laughs> no. Think about it. What is school supposed to teach kids? How to get along with other kids, sociability. If the most right. important right, people right. in the child's life still are the parents, that's why we got such a fucked up society. No, there was two. There's two dads I really like at my school, like really like, and they were both there, right? The one guy seems like me. I don't know what he does for a living, but I know it's very flexible. He probably right? is an ex musician or, or was a musician in the 80s, a working musician. He's probably a counselor now. No, I think he works in like the movie industry or something, or an actor, or he's an actor or something. But the other guy is a full-on businessman. He's told, he works in downtown LA. He takes the train to work and and stuff. And I thought, and he was there, right? And I thought this motherfucker loves his kid or whatever it is. Took the train back home, had to drive the car up here, and now and as soon as our kids were done, the first grade class was done, the, the, we were all out the door, right? Gone. We're not going to sit and watch the second graders. I don't give a fuck about them. <laughs> you know what I mean? The whole thing, it just had a Louis C.K. vibe about it. It's just like all these parents sitting there. And I started, I drove all the way home from Mount Washington to Claremont, and I was thinking... Who was in the audience when I was a kid? Because I was in choir and men's glee club and all through school, in Catholic school and then in public school. And I was in a traveling men's glee club in high school. It was like was a it award like the TV winning. show? Was it, it like was, Glee? It, no, I mean there wasn't as many. There was no girls in. Did it. you go to finals, nationals? We went to nationals. Yeah. And did your dad we never best. go? My dad never went. My mom, I remember, went one well, time that could because be the problem. Because why? Why I ended up a heroin addict? Because my parents didn't go to my maybe recital. If you, maybe if your dad had gone, <laughs> we wouldn't be sitting here today. No, but wait a minute. But who was in the audience was our other classmates, and we wanted to impress them. You want to be cool in front of them, right? You know what I mean. Right, I right, remember right. Yeah. I had a lead part in the hallelujah chorus right at the christmas recital big high school play with the whole orchestra and everything right i was so stoked that girls that i liked were there i was a sophomore in high school like girls are going to be there i didn't give a fuck if my parents were there are you kidding no, yeah. me no exactly. we've lost something people when the parents are the most important thing in the child's life we're losing something you're supposed to learn how society works. How I gave this example to Christy on the way home. So I was the kid that was, when I moved to Palm Desert, right, in fifth grade, I was this kid from L.A. And people in the desert were scared of kids from L.A. Like they lived in L.A. where the Watts riots were and all kinds of scary shit went on in L.A. And that was still the propaganda then in 70, 71, right? Mm. So... I played on that. I was like, yeah, you better be fucking scared of me. And I ran that school, right? Badass Fifth Bob. grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, I ran that school. <laughs> Nothing went past me. Everything had to be checked with Forrest, right? <laughs> and I had my squad, Matt Held and Tommy Paletti and, and David Vaughn and Scotty Sims and Scott Slavens. We were like, a, we were like the mafia of that school, right? Until seventh grade, this way big, tough, cool kid 
you can just see him in the first day of school. Like, who the fuck is that? Who the fuck is that? His name was Forrest Mayle. His last name was Mayle. His, his dad was Bob Mayle, the DJ. He was a DJ in L.A. and Palm Springs, right? So it was obvious, like, oh, he could beat me up. Oh, my God, he could <laughs> challenge my authority very easily just with his manly size, right? So it, over the first month of school, it's like, there's going to be a showdown between Forrest and Forrest. Ah, he was right? your Jolene. So I intuitively knew if he challenges me, he can beat my ass, he can outsmart me, he can, he can out whatever me. I've got I've to negotiate this. And so what I did was I endeared myself to him. Like, I was like, what's the deal? And I really loved music, so his dad was a DJ, right? We, and it was not fake, it was real. We became best friends, right? And that, and then he was just like a part of our gang and whatever. You learn that shit when I'm 11. You fucking learn how to compromise, how to negotiate, how to f- form alignments, how to, how to get along with other people, how to give in, how to know your strengths, how to know your weaknesses. When you're constantly consulting your fucking parents from the time you're five years old to you're 45, it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> no, I, I get now, it. Are I, you sure this isn't just Bob Forrest, the young sociopath, <laughs> making know. friends with the largest kid in school <laughs> to back yeah. him up? Because that's exactly what I used to do. <laughs> and, and then you His name with was that Dale thing. Putnam. And he <laughs> Mike was the still biggest, remembers it. The biggest guy in school. And I said, that guy's going to be my best friend. He used to stand behind me, and I would ask people for their lunch money. <laughs> No, you know he what? didn't say a word. When, when I was 19, I went to Orange County Jail for the first time. There was a giant, big old freaking Nordic fool. It was like six foot seven something giant, like snow demons tattooed on his back, a whole back piece tattoo. And I said, that guy is going to be my friend. And I walked up and I said, hey, how you doing? I'm Charlie. Pat O'Rourke, one of the biggest, meanest men I'd ever seen. Why? So why is this something our children... I guarantee you, the 20-year-olds I'm dealing with have no idea of what we're even fucking talking about. Because you know why? Because they call their mommies when something goes wrong. I know, and that's weird because I was just thinking that same thing. Talking about doing music, doing being down at my buddy Eric's house, and we were in a band in like eighth grade. My mom would say, what do you guys play down there? I didn't want to play guitar for her. But I wanted to play down in Eric's workshop because all the girls and all the guys wanted to come around and hang out down there and see what we were doing with the music. I'm telling you. So so it's a part of the addiction problem, this enmeshment with parents. It starts when they're fucking in first grade. I see it. I see it. So... So Elvis had a little problem in kindergarten where he was being a bully and kids didn't like him, right? And everybody's up and on. It's like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? I went to him. I go, dude, you need to become likable. People aren't liking you because of the way you're behaving. I want you to be the, the wonderful kid that you are with us, right? Be, be who you are because he gets nervous around other kids, you know, and he be an asshole. You got to tell your kid, hey, you're not likable. It's not poor Elvis. Nobody likes him. No, but you know what? You, you know said what it mean? properly. You said that so correctly. The way you're acting. Because it isn't who you are. You know, it's not, not you're a dick. You're acting like a dick. Stop it. Yeah. And, and what I've noticed is 
he'll he'll try what you're saying and then see the results of it. But this idea of like, oh, poor Elvis, nobody likes him. Like that whole thing that goes all the way, Chuck, until they're in your rehab tonight. Oh, nobody, no, he's going to, this has got to stop. This like, always happens. No, this always happens. Why, why, you know, he's always been, ever since he was 14. I guarantee you, I hear that from moms especially. I've always mm -hmm. known he had problems since he was 14. Like, okay, then why didn't you do something? Why didn't you do something different? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, why did you do the same thing for twenty for 10 years? I use your words all the time, though. And I go, do you know your child? Yeah. <laughs> because the child you're talking about never met him. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know. Maybe you, maybe this is your kid's evil twin that we've got here. I don't know. He has a mustache. That, he's probably the evil twin with, if he's got a mustache. That started with the mom who told me he needs to get a job at Starbucks. I was like, have you ever met your kid? He can never work at Starbucks. Are you fucking kidding me? You've been wiping his ass for 31 years. He can't even order a drink at Starbucks. <laughs> he has to have somebody else help him. Have somebody tell him what to do? So... So part of part of what my thing is like we have to rethink parenting. We just have to. It somehow what we've been doing does not make for the next generation of confident stewards of our society. It's making for a 20% addiction population rate, a 30% unemployment rate, a 80% of college graduates return home and live with their parents the fuck is that well you know that that tells me exactly the back to your diy thing damn it i hate it when you're right but when you're right you're right that tells me we can't go to the experts for answers on this no it's you can't experts it's the people that know stuff you know we talked about education last week and how we need someone who's in the education system to fix it apparently not Apparently, we need somebody from outside of the education system. The parenting system, we need people that aren't experts, but that are trying things or that have found things that work. Open forums. I, I heard you and uh, Chrissy are going to be doing something, yeah, right? Yeah, we're going to do this, anti, this uh, the politically incorrect parenting. And that, that kind of stuff where it's people who have done and had success and had failures and are willing to be open and honest about it, not look good, being willing to you know look like a dick sometimes is what it takes this is where i failed this is where i've been successful this didn't work this did work this doesn't work with this kid it does work with this kid but it's about people can't be afraid of failure or afraid of their child being in pain so i'll give you an example a practical thing that goes on around here sid is now walking like kind of like, not very well. <laughs> Taking headers. <laughs> Taking, fucking fell off the couch the other night oh. and smacked her head on the dining room, on the coffee table. And I was just like, so a lot of times when she's struggling, I'll go pick her up and just take her where she wants to go. And Chrissy's like, will you stop doing that? How the hell is she ever going to learn? She's, you know, because we got a lot of stairs in our house and she's mm -hmm. always, she's just going to fall, fall, fall. Apparently, that's why they make babies' heads so soft. <laughs> that's because <laughs> they're going to fall. Why? Because why? they fall. She falls all the time now. She soft. falls. She bangs her head into oh. things all the time. Like, but, but so I, and with Elvis, I know I rescued him and take and carried him and didn't allow him to, you know what I mean? And Chrissy's the, the like, I, I'll tell you, today, 
I was in the bedroom doing something, and and Sid was in the living room, and Chrissy just came into the bedroom and went into the bathroom, and I was like, "Who's with Sid right now?" <laughs> She's gonna be alone She's for alone? thirty seconds or My more. God, you can't urinate, woman. What the fuck is going on? Ask me to relieve you. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you, in most parenting uh, uh, circles of people in Los Angeles, to leave your child to go pee is a sin. Well, it I should be a crime. You need to bring the child into the public restroom <laughs> at the park. Well, you know, that's different in public. I guess it's a totally different thing. No, but it, here, it's like it's 20 you, feet away. I, I know. And, and you go with the door open just in case. What are but, you, what are you going to do? What are you going to stop? I just, I just think that a lot, there's a, it's not why, and this is getting to Mike's point. I don't think it's why people are becoming drug addicts. I think it's why they're not able to get better. How about that? The poor parenting and the enmeshment and the attachment and the rescuing and the fucking shit you've been doing since they were fucking 18 months old that never stopped, that never had degrees of dis, of disengagement, that never had degrees of them taking more responsibility for their lives. That's why the kids can't get better. Not why they became drug addicts. I'm just saying... Parents need to back off. Just detach with love is what Al-Anon says. Detach with love. You love your child. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes you got to go pee. You know what I mean? <laughs> sometimes that lasts for a year. An interesting thought is, you know, have you ever seen these kids that grew up and they're completely sober? They never tried drugs or yeah, anything? Yeah, I have and two friends like that. Two people I know that have never drank a beer, never smoked a hit of pot, both both of their parents were kind of solid and didn't drink or take drugs either. Because I've asked hmm. them questions, right? And, and one said, I don't like being out of control. So control was an issue, ah. right? So, so you could look at that. But, but I just think that somehow the, what we're focusing on is why are kids dying? And I believe they're dying for a multiplicity of reasons, many different reasons. One is the old Minnesota model of treatment is too indulging for them because they've been indulged their whole life. So asking them how they're feeling is what they've been asked their whole life. When you're a, a rough and tumble baby boomer who runs your own business or is in a rock band, Somebody asking you how you're feeling is very, is very, it's uncomfortable. You don't want to be asked that. Like, I'm fine. That's how the word fine came up. Treatment centers in the 80s and 90s started asking really important questions that needed to be asked of baby boomers who were addicts and alcoholics. How are you feeling? What is really going on with you? These millennials have been asked that every fucking day their whole fucking lives. That's the absolute opposite should be asked of them. I don't care what you're feeling. I don't care what you think. You know, that's that's a crazy point because I, I remember being in one of my early treatments, uh, 80, 85, 86, and my dad being in that, and we were doing a family therapy. Oh, he didn't like it at all. And, and, they, and they said, when was the last time, uh, you know, your dad told you that he loved, loved you? Loved you, never. And it was one of those things where I go, you know, I don't really, 
I don't really remember. He's and, never. My and, dad but, never said the words "I love you, Bobby." And and my and my mom goes, "I'm sure. I'm sure he said it recently because that's what moms do. Moms cover for dads." Yeah. And then he, my dad goes, "You know what? My dad never told me he loved me. He showed me like I've shown you." Right. You know, and the, there's so there was a total disconnect. Where you're right. I mean, there was a total disconnect between his dad didn't tell him, but showed him by providing. Yeah. Not not through hugs. And not through wanting to hear about your day or hear about how you're feeling, because that wasn't important. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to get through life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall down, hurt my knee, and realize I don't want to run fast on the blacktop anymore. Yeah. Or I need to pay attention to what I'm doing. I'm going to learn my lessons, and there's stuff that he's going to come around and hit me every once in a while to remind me that what I did was wrong. Yeah. It, 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 it was effective. The fact that I ended up doing what I did was a lot of choice, a lot of free choice. Well, you sounds like you had a parent like mine. I I remember I I think I I'm trying to think. So we live in the desert. So I led the league in batting and home runs in one year in little league, right? And we were coming home from the banquet or whatever the pizza parlor thing, right? My dad said we were just he and I in the car. Proud of you, Bobby. I'm proud of you, Bobby. I, that was the most powerful thing he had ever said to me. It made me so happy that I had made him proud. We tell our kids that we're proud of them because they fucking drew a fucking crayon on a piece of paper. Or you know what poop. I mean? There is far <laughs> too much praise going on. So the praise doesn't mean anything. He said, I can still remember it. He said, I'm proud of you, Bobby. You worked really hard or something like that. And because I wasn't the greatest hitter, and then I became, I practiced at it, right? They, here's, you know why? They opened a batting cage in Palm Springs. I lived in Palm Desert, and twice a week I would get my mom to drive me up to Palm Springs to go to the batting, you know, where they pitch a ball right, right. with two yeah. tires or whatever. We've got those in Orange County. I know, they have them everywhere now, but <laughs> this is 1974, brother. There wasn't a lot of those things around. They weren't given trophies for every like for every <laughs> no, kid. No. Every kid gets a trophy. No, so no. it's actually stopped. Uh, everybody gets a trophy. Yeah, it's stopped. stopped. It's, it's over. That, now nobody gets a trophy. Right. It's weird. What? Now no, nobody that, gets a trophy. That's, that's last year's thing. But, so now nobody that's gets That's sold one? five years ago. But can you follow me, Chuck? Because I throw ideas at you. Because I, I really think that that asking millennials how they feel is a waste of time. They've been asked how they're feeling every morning they've woken up their entire life. How are you feeling today, honey? How are you feeling? How are you feeling? Right? Hmm. How do you feel about this? We're going to get a divorce. How do you feel? How are you feeling today, buddy? It's like, <laughs> and then to go, in, but to go to be a hardcore trauma survivor motherfucker asked in 1989 in minnesota how are you how are you feeling what, what's going on with you I'm that's all right. that's I'm but all right. that but that's not how i was feeling and that's not how you were feeling when they asked you right you said fine fine like yeah. pass you wanted out of it that's how fine the joke in recovery industry was fucked up, insecure, mm -hmm. neurotic, and emotional. Right, That's how right, it right. came. Because you were asked how you're feeling, and you said, fine. I don't want to talk about feelings. Mm -hmm. Because feelings were so uncomfortable to talk about. That's why the Minnesota model is based on that psych-social approach to ask you, to get inside you, to figure you out. 
millennials have been having their parents do that to them their entire well, life. They don't have a problem telling you what they're feeling. I don't give As a, a matter fuck fact, what they're there, feeling. There's so much feeling that it's about, okay, I'm glad you're feeling. Now do this. Yeah. And and so I don't even ask them how they're feeling. I'm sure I'm sure they're feeling uh uh you know, sad. Sad, glad, happy, <laughs> good, too. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, but uh, but so I started taking the new questions. What are you what have you been thinking about lately? What have you been thinking about lately? Hmm. What do you want to do in life? What if you die this weekend? What's, what what did your life mean? I ask co- cognitive questions, get them thinking. What if, and I say it you so, asked him what do you what if he died? This yeah, weekend? what if you die this weekend? What did your life mean? Is that I wrong? Asked, I don't. Is that well? Wrong? I'm is sure some wrong? I'm sure some clinical you know people think it's wrong. They're, they're, right now, <laughs> right now, Doctor Phil is thinking how how wrong that I is. Mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm just checking. I'm just curious. Is that wrong? You know? A lot of people don't like my approach, Mike. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean to get to get. People I just like that, to bring up the subject that you could die feelings. this weekend. You could fucking die this weekend. I just like to get the subject right up in their face, right? Yeah, click the brain and not the emotions. Yeah, but how click are you feeling? Uh, what are you feeling? You feeling sad? Your fucking life is shit. You should be sad. That's what I say. It's o- yeah, it's okay to be sad. Stand still and hurt. Uh, walk through it. Sad, sad, and and uh, and. You know, wanting to thrill seek and and uh, evocative behavior to avoid sadness. I, I'm good at explaining that when somebody's been around a couple of weeks, right? So their natural state is sad and and kind of helpless and kind of lost, right? And so they use drugs or sex or social media to escape that sadness, right? Okay. Rather than dig deep into that sadness, where does that sadness come from? Right? Let's think about it. You should be sad. You've never had your own apartment. You didn't graduate from high school. You've never had a job. You've been on drugs since you were 13. You should be fucking sad. And you should want change. And you should want an apartment. And you should want for a constructive, productive life in which you are not sad all the time. But you have to work for that. (laughs) It's really not that hard to work because... Because one of the things that's beautiful is, and Aloe does it, I'm sure Wavelengths does it, a lot of treatment centers, even sleazy ones I don't like will do it. If a client is really showing 100% effort, they'll they'll drift into some neverland where they can stay a while, mm-hmm. right, until they can find a job. I've seen it at some of the rehab centers I'm not crazy about. I've seen them scholarship people. But it's... But it's but it shouldn't be a quid pro quo for a friend or a family member or whatever. It should be for the kid who's going fucking balls out to 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 really stay sober. We've, we've the, got a one to five ratio right now, scholarships, just because <clears throat> that very reason. I can do you one better. We got a sober living in Hollywood. More than half the house is scholarships right now. <laughs> It's our dumping ground of scholarships. The be- where your son was, oh, Beechwood House. That's a nice place. Because we were going over it, and I was like, "Are so and so and so and so still at Beechwood?" And they were like, "Yeah." They said you said you, they could stay there, and I was like, "I think I did." But I mean, they've been there a long time, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, Pay some rent. and then I think Evan said, "And there's one of mine in there too." And there's only nine beds there, and we turned out that five of them are scholarships. 
Does it pay for the property? No, it's losing money. <laughs> Can't even pay the rent at that point. That's Man. crazy, right? But that's that's and I'm not trying to boast. I, it's a mistake that I'm trying to correct by the new year. Right. I gotta get those guys moving along. Well, you know, it's, it's not like I'm going, oh gosh, we love losing money. Let's just keep them here until forever. My agenda is I have to go over there and talk to a couple of them and say, you know what? Like after the first of the year, you're gonna have to figure this out, right? But because I wouldn't throw somebody out at Christmas or something, but oh, but, I would. But I've seen some of the worst treatment centers scholarship people that are really working hard. So I always tell kids, like, listen, don't worry about your insurance. Don't worry about the fucking the, the rigmarole of treatment and where you can go and all this body brokering and all this bullshit. If you make a hundred percent effort, I guarantee you either the place you're in or another place will help you. If you go after this thing a hundred percent, you will you your needs will be met, right? And and I've seen it. I've seen it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's one good thing about the recovery industry is that if somebody's going all out, they'll they'll get scholarship. I had this kid, Ryan, living at my house. You know Ryan. Yeah. He was living there for like six months for free. I tried to make him a co-manager and try to make up something to rationalize to myself happening there. He was good. He was helpful. Yeah. Well, but, you know, and that's important that that's important for other people because when you got somebody that's a positive role model and they're doing what they need to do and they're but there comes a point where just like what you're doing where you realize you're not doing many you're not doing them any favors by allowing them to continue for free because that's not real life well it's hard it's hard it's hard because you are seeing somebody do really good right like the the one friend of mine that stayed sober all year almost, I think since February, like how long is it? March, April, May, June, July, Ooh, August, September, October, November. Nine months, dude. That's amazing. That is amazing, right? But there is a certain point where the next step of the ladder needs to be stepped up to on, right? right. And mm-hmm. and you, and it's a delicate balance and you have to be loving and kind and you have to say, you know, I love you. I don't, I don't know what to do here. I, I say that all the time. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is. They'll tell you. You know that. You know that they'll tell you what the right thing is because they know. And then you can come to a happy medium. where Well, you know, the right thing obviously would be for me to start paying rent. And then you go, okay, so when should you start doing that? <laughs> <laughs> After the first of the year. <laughs> do you, you want to owe me for the last few months? Or do you think it's fair yeah. if we just pick it up here? It's funny. But I, I, you know. They know the right answers. Well, one of the things that you can do when you have the luxury of sober livings and treatment centers is you can have an open door community, right? That used to exist before all this nonsense. Whereas I can guarantee you, my two favorite rehabs I've ever been in are Hazelden and Cry Help, right? <laughs> Anytime you wanted to go to Hazelden, you could go. I mean, you got to get to Minnesota and then you got to get out to Center City, but you were welcome there to go to the lectures, to go to the family group. You were welcome there. I mean, I don't know if it still stands like that, but this was in the 90s, right? Because I went there and visited. Yeah, I don't know if HIPAA would let you do that, but neither here nor there. If what? The insurance, the privacy laws, HIPAA. No, it's public. It, it, the lectures are open to the public, like the the family lecture thing. I think. I mean, I, you sign. Don't you have it? Just a thing you sign that you're. What well, you, you can, see you, can here. Even do, you can even do that verbal as long as you do that to everybody walking through the door. But I, I don't know. 
But I, I imagine they probably don't anymore. But I went back there and I visited and I visited my counselor and a friend of mine's mom worked there and she was so wonderful to me. And I, I, I just love that place. And then Cry Help, how about this? In the 90s, after you graduated from Cry Help, you could come there to the nine o'clock group and sit in. How in, about that? In the morning? You could walk in, sign in, go into the group. It was a 12-step group, morning group, 12-step group. And it was amazing. Like, you could, you know, if you were feeling insecure, you didn't have a job, or you weren't working that day or whatever, you could go and be safe at Cry Help. I, I doubt, yeah, you're probably right. I should check on that. I bet you no, can't though, do it. I, I bet I, you I, can't do that anymore. I, I bet you can because I know we have people do that. I know we have people show up. I know we have people hang out. I know we have, because we have sort of a Cracker Barrel type of environment where, where I work. You want to know something interesting about the HIPAA law? It doesn't mean anything. It's violated every second of every day in every treatment center everywhere. Just about. And it's yeah. never been prosecuted. Go look it up. Look it up. Look up the, how many times it's been prosecuted. It's just the talked fines. about. They can't even fucking shut down places that murder people. You think they're really going to fucking... <laughs> oh, my God. You said their last name. Blah, 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 blah. But, <laughs> you know, it's the most unregulated industry other than the coal industry. I, I think it's put in place to make people feel good. But, you know, all that information gets out there in the stratosphere anyhow. It's I don't all know. I purposely, I'm, I'm, I never care about people's last names ever. I don't want, I know too many people. I just know people's stories and their names. <clears throat> as long as I'm only mentioning <coughs> their first name, it's not, a, it's not a HIPAA violation. Yeah, and you don't get any, like, the, you can't get any more in depth than the state. You can say the state they're from, first name. Just can't give identifying no, the, features. The dude that chased that went around selling Grateful Dead T-shirts. What is that? A HIPAA violation? I always identify people in their stories. Something about their story that reminds mm -hmm. me of them. And, yeah, no, I yeah. It, it, the whole thing, it, it, it's a lot of it's really nonsensical. But I, I think it's it, it's how much of the world is nonsensical. Chrissy is gonna. She graduates from master's program on thursday right nice. and so she's looking to volunteer here to have something to do to fill that at that time that she was going to school so i said you know miriam's house is our favorite uh philanthropic organization you ever heard of that miriam's mm. house it's a rehab center in culver city for moms and their children to be in treatment together nice. it's called miriam's house if you ever if you ever care about donating 50 bucks go online and find a place called miriam's house in culver city mar vista um it was started by richard rog who started promises and that's my favorite place right um i'll do anything for them and so so I thought, you know, you should, you should volunteer for my friend Patricia at Miriam's house. And it's like an hour and 40-minute drive from here. So then I said, let's try to find a Miriam's house in Pomona <laughs> or Claremont, right? So we finally found one in Upland. It's like a place for moms and their children, addicts and their children. So she called there, and she has to go to a training thing, uh, uh, like whatever they do, the introductory thing on January 11th, right? And Chrissy is like, oh my God, I've been going to fucking school for 16 years and now I got to go to all day training just to volunteer at a center. Like, isn't this stupid? And I said, get ready. Because she's been living in academic world for fucking ah, 18. Yeah, okay. Like the whole world is stupid. 
You know what I mean? Like, if, yeah. you, if that's irritating to you, wait till you see what's on the other side of the curtain of stupidity of laws and rules and bullshit on top of bullshit on top of bullshit, HIPAA being one of them, right? right? And uh, uh, the new Kipu being another one, Kipu and, and all the rules of Medicaid and all the rules of fucking... And here's the thing. All these things are protect the, to protect the patient, right? I understand that. I understand why there are rules. How come nobody's protecting the patients? How come the patients are unsafe? How come they're being abused and sold to the highest bidder? How come they're being railroaded and thrown through these cookie-cut bullshit rehabs that just bill their insurance whether they're sitting in their chair or not? How come that goes on every fucking day in the United States of America, but we got all these laws to protect the patients? When everybody knows they're being sold to the highest bidder, every television commercial on television that says, are you an addict? Do you need help? That's a body broker. That's a person who's ready to sell that lead for seven to $12,000 to a fucking sleazy treatment center. This goes on. It's right in your face. It's right on CNN. The television commercials on CNN are fucking white, black slavery, whatever, attic slavery <laughs> is right on television. But yet we, oh, we're keeping the patient safe by having HIPAA laws. Yeah. Bull fucking shit. You know, those things, I've watched them change. They're like, uh, they're like a lot of modern churches where they change the rules as things go. It used to be you couldn't, ha you couldn't even have like a, a laptop that was Wi-Fi because that laptop could be hacked without, because it wasn't plugged in. Oh, yeah. And it was, you couldn't Kipu keep Kipu on your phone. Yeah, but yeah. now they say, hey, when you're on your phone, on Kipu, be like really careful and stuff. Those, I just had to recertify. Those you know, the at home don't know what Kipu is. It's this digital version of documentation. Yeah, so, it's EMR. It's electronic medical records. So here's yeah. the thing about it that is the most destructive. When there used to be a chart, and I worked both in, I worked when there was just charts, and then I worked in the transitional period where the beginnings of Kipu and digital uh, documentation, nobody really reads it when it's, when it's on your phone. I mean, it's hard to navigate if you're not that sophisticated technical, technically. Um, so you're not reading what other people are writing about the client. When there was a physical chart, I always read them. I wanted to know what went on with the client that day. And it was in, I don't know, there was just something about a physical chart that made communication. Because what is a chart? It's the different team members communicating about the care of the patient. Now Kipu is only used as a billing instrument. It's a really simple way for the rehab centers to to do their billing. And most of Kipu is steered and designed for billing insurance companies. It's not designed for the Chemical Dependency Council, which is you and I, to communicate with the doctor and the nurse and the psychiatrist and the other clinicians and the social worker working with the client. Nobody looks at it except mm. for the billing people and the utilization review people. And it's a sin and it's a shame because I many times went into a chart and looked at it, and I would just get lost reading what how people were interpreting the client. We, we keep those at the houses. On the house level, they've got Bibles. Oh, they're... that's what they call Bibles. You know, they, they're, they're like the old school com logs. Like when I yeah. first, in an early, One shift to in the early sobriety. In, in Aha, Bibles in Orange County. 
Yeah, there you go. That <laughs> reference because it was so familiar to Orange County people, the Bible. So they call the what's it's communication log. It's a shift change log. So right. this patient's agitated, irritable. Everything seems to be everything kind of went on. The, the mood of the house, the mood of the people. Who were the standouts, and what was the going people on? I train and the people I work with? They don't understand what communication is. Even how about that? So. I would always go to the comm log, is what it was called, mm -hmm. at PRC and different places. And, and when I was a tech, I would go to the comm log. And then whoever all day long was causing a shitstorm, that would be my first person I was going to see and sit down and smoke <laughs> with and talk with. Because I'm right. the one that, you know, come on, dude, what's going on with you? Right? That's a job of the tech. That's the job of the clinicians, is to like, address what the client is going through nobody reads it now it's on kipu nobody reads it nobody knows this guy's been spinning for 24 hours and he wants to use and you know what what it often is used as to get rid of bad patients to start writing up kind of bad document you know they're treatment resistant they're violent they're this they're that except yeah, right? or just but, to get rid of their psych they, not, that doesn't even happen i wish that did happen sometimes because you go to do a administrative discharge sometimes and there's no documentation and there's nothing there and it's just like she's there's not emails there's not i mean you're right because there's no comm log there's no communication and the, and i always think it takes a team of us it's not the system that helps the person there's too much faith in systems in our society, right? Meaning, oh, they have a program, so the program fixes people. No, people fix people. Love fixes people. Attunement fixes people. Excellence fixes people. Mediocrity and letting Aetna dictate what our treatment is and then just fulfilling Aetna's documentation requirements to them you miss out on why you document anything to begin with it's a communication log and it's a it's a cya thing in case something goes wrong this is where the patient was at this is what was documented about them prior to the event right <laughs> and something for the different when you come on shift read the communication log and see what's going on with the clients you're about to be with for eight fucking hours right <laughs> And so, you know, we're going to get back to the basics of it. But if you're out there and you're a clinician, please email me what's going on in your treatment center. And maybe we can talk about some subjects that's going on. I know what's going on a little bit in Florida. A lot of my ethical friends down in Florida are very excited about the future of Florida. And they always give me shit for talking shit about Florida. Because there's some good people down in Florida. There's I'm good sure people there everywhere. Yeah, I'm sure there are. You there's know, some there's, in Minnesota. There's, there's some in there's Minnesota. a couple here. There's... there's there's not as many as there used to be around here, right? All the good guys got out. A lot of my friends just got out, right? Richard Roggs, one of my all-time heroes. If you go to rehabbob.com, you can see an interview I did with my... The, he, I hate to say it, but the only remaining living hero of mine in the recovery industry is Richard mm -hmm. Rock. Gloria Scott, buddy Arnold passed on, but Richard Rock, and he started Promises 30 years ago or whatever, and I interviewed him for an hour. It was so neat, and it's on the website, and you can see what treatment used to be like and what the ideas were and what it, what, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And when it became what, and here's what you got to understand. When it became what it's like now, Richard just said, I ain't fucking with this. 
He said he ran a group one time and a kid was texting and he goes, hey, 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 what the fuck is that? Hey, 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 hey. It's a fucking rehab center, right? And the text came over to him and said, they're allowed to have their phones now. And he was like, I'm out. That was the last group he ever ran. <laughs> like, clients can text while they're in my group. Why the fuck should I come? <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought that was funny. No, that is. I, <laughs> so I, I get it. I mean, that's I Harold Owens. Harold Owens works for Music Cares, wants nothing to do. I tried to drag Harold Owens back into for, <clears throat> starting a rehab center with me. I don't know if you know Harold Owens, but he's the greatest counselor. One of the greatest counselors who ever lived. He was me and Anthony and Kurt Cobain's and everybody's counselor. And so, but he's been working in a education role and a, a treatment, you know, facilitation role at Music Cares for years, right? And I've been trying to get him, come on, Harold, let's open a rehab center. I'll get the money. You just, just got to fucking be with me, you and me side by side every day. And he's like, not a chance. Are you fucking kidding me? I love my life. You know what Dang. I mean? Because he knows you got to compete with all this bullshit, right? You got to compete with the permissive state of the recovery industry, and you can't have a real rehab. Yeah, but, it's a fine line having a real rehab. But a rehab. good product sells itself, so it wouldn't take very yeah. long for it to become a successful, viable thing that resets standards. No, you can't. You can't. You don't. I'll give you the example. I'll tell you the history of Aloe. So I just said we need... Licensed full-time employees. We need safety. We need, obviously, luxury, because that's what the, the market is. We need, um, we need honest marketing. No buying patients. We need all these things. And Evan and Jared have been so wonderful over the years. They're like, they always say yes. They've never said no to me. How about that? Hmm. Right? So, <laughs> so... Come down the road five years, where are we at? We're at like all the other treatment centers have sold for 20 and $30 million. Nobody wants to buy a rehab center with the kind of overhead we have. And it will be destroyed if it's sold. They'll come in, they'll fire everyone. Our staff are well, well compensated, right? That's why nobody ever quits working at Allo. No one's ever quit. No, one, no one's ever said, I don't want to work here anymore. It's a shithole. Right, people that have worked there have worked there since the beginning or shortly after when we expanded. Right, our clinical director Chris has worked at every treatment center in America in Los Angeles and loves it there. And he's he's equal to us. You know, Carson, the the, the clinical supervisors, equal to me and Evan and Jared. Everybody has equal say. There's no fucking pyramid with the big kingpins on the top. Right, hmm. so it hardly makes any money. <laughs> it hardly it, we all get good salaries but that's about it my main point is if you're a clinician and you're working in treatment in ohio in florida in pennsylvania in alaska in washington will you please email me at cries and whispers at hotmail.com or however you contact us please tell me what's going on in your treatment center in your neck of the woods What's going on on the streets with the addicts? Will you please start a Don't Die organization or a Don't Die podcast or, or community or just, you know, be a part of this stuff we're talking about because I'm in this for life. 
I've been in this since 1999. I've worked every day in treatment since 1999. How long is that? Far too long. And visit the new rehabbob.com because it's been upgraded and it's totally cool. And there's a bunch of videos on there. And, um, and we're going to put out the, the depressing video that Mike and I made soon. Yeah. After the New Year. Might as well. you, can't, you can't put it out before Christmas. Let's put it out on Christmas Day. <laughs> is, that the, is that the OD one? Yeah, yeah that's rough. That's rough. That's fucking rough. That's Christmas Day. It's so, just not very it funny. There, well, there, there's nothing comical about that no. video. No, I You know what, though? It's shocking, and maybe that's what needs to happen. But I, I really do think they sanitize death too much. It, and, and it's just like, oh, the statistics. No, every person that tomato to plenty taught me this. Right? No, Screamers. The screamers lead singer. We were walking down the street one day and there was a schizophrenic, crazy, homeless woman just covered in dirt. And he was very kind to her. I was kind of scared of her. I was like 20 years old. I'm kind of like, get away from me, smelly old lady. And um, he was very kind to her and he hugged her on Hollywood Boulevard. And I was like, whoa. And he looked at me and he knew I was shocked. He was just kind and said it's kind of whatever he said to her and kind of played into her madness or whatever. And and then we were walking back down Hollywood Boulevard and he was looking at me and he goes, he goes, she's that's somebody's sister, Bob. That's somebody's mother, maybe. That's somebody's daughter. Don't ever forget that. That's Tomato to Plenty, the the singer of the Screamers, right? Mm. The that his face is the most iconic picture of what punk rock looks like, yeah, yeah. right? That's a great, yeah, that's a and great he one. was so kind to this homeless, schizophrenic lady on Hollywood Boulevard. It made such an impression on me when I was 20 years old. I idolized him so much, and he, he transformed my life in that moment. I'm always thinking, like, that's somebody's mother, that's somebody's brother, that's somebody who fought for our country. That's not somebody to ignore. That's not somebody to look down on, right? And so we need to keep teaching this shit until the cows come home. I, I'm telling you, our, our, somebody's not been teaching the teachings of Tomato to Plenty for many decades. You know what I mean? I think that's really well said. All right, we'll see you next time, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Hey, this is Bob in the Don't Die Podcast. Got a hundred people a day dying of drug overdoses and it's gotta stop. Aloe Treatment Centers wants it to stop. We want people to get educated about drugs, about treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live, but first and foremost, don't die.